A conspiracy theorist is someone who questions the statements of known liars. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today joining me is James Perloff, author of Shadows of Power, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, and today's two topics, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, and his uh, most recent work on COVID-19. Mr. Perloff, thank you for joining me. Where is the best place to find your work? Well, uh, all my books are available on Amazon, uh, with the exception of my book on COVID, which we'll be uh, touching on today, uh, COVID-19 and the agendas to come red-pilled. You know, uh, it actually sold 3,500 copies on Amazon in less than two months, um, and it was rated five stars by customers. Um, it was doing great there, and then just, I was expecting this, they suddenly censored it, as they do, you know, like you people on YouTube, and then they get yanked, right? So they yanked my book after two months, uh, despite the sales and the re customer reviews. And um, so that book, um, is available any place but Amazon. I have my own distributor, so you can get it at Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. You can buy it in bulk from me. And I also give uh, the digital copy away for, for free. Uh, when you go to my website, jamespilloff.net, you can either write me and ask for a copy on the contact form. Or if you subscribe to my site, you automatically get to download uh, a version of your choice. It's available in three formats, uh, EPUB, uh, Mobi, uh, and a PDF. Uh, all of them with digital hyperlinks so you can check any of the references instantly. Terrific. I want to start with your book, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, and then move into the modern day. The first thing you go over in the book is the Spanish-American War of 1898, something very often passed over. Uh, why is uh, this a, a noteworthy event for uh, your book? Well, I actually went into this Spanish-American War because I found that nobody else in alt media was doing that. And I found that, uh, well, the war had a lot of motives, and it was actually the first war that America fought not to defend ourselves, but to be a policeman for the rest of the world, it was supposedly to free Cuba and make Cuba independent. And this is the first time that the concept was introduced to Americans that our military's purpose is no longer just defending our country, but to defend other people and to go overseas and fight their wars for them. But of course, we weren't really fighting it for the Cuban fight of a national city bank, which took over Cuba's sugar industry, which is the largest in the world at that time. It was the world's wealthiest colony by the 19th century. And we wanted to strip uh, Spain of her possessions. We also took, by the way, the Philippines and Puerto Rico away from Spain as well as a result of that four month war. Um, and uh, the war also uh, distracted attention from Wall Street as being the bad guys to Spain being the bad guys. And that actually deflated the uh, up and coming populist movement, which was doing pretty well at the time running presidential candidates. They never ran another presidential candidate after that war. Um, and of course, resulted um, in um, loans being uh, charged to the American government to pay for the war, which we actually were paying for more than 100 years after that war, believe it or not, through a telephone tax. Um, the, and uh, the, the White House was being uh, manipulated and it had a lot of uh, significant comparisons to other wars. It had a false flag in the sinking of the Maine, which you can compare to Pearl Harbor, 9-11, Lusitania, right? And also fake atrocity stories in the media, you know, how the Spaniards were throwing Cubans to sharks and roasting Spanish uh, Cuban priests, things like that, which were all fake, uh, just like the incubator baby story of 1991 uh, or the uh, German soldiers cutting uh, hands off of babies during World War One, those things didn't happen, but uh, 
uh, they were, nonetheless were used to persuade Americans that it, it was a righteous duty to go uh, destroy the latest offender of human rights. And they're still doing it. Gaddafi yeah. caught giving his troops Viagra as a tool of mass rape, says Wolf Blitzer on CNN. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember that thing, but uh, Susan Rice also uh, pushed uh, pu- pushed that one. Um, uh, these, uh, the, these things are just uh, incredible. Let's go into the Lusitania. Why is the Lusitania important? Reading mainstream history, it's just the U.S. tried to stay isolationist, but uh, the Germans were going to have uh, get, give parts of America back to Mexico. So Germany provoked America by sinking the Lusitania. What's the reality behind that story? Yeah, you know, uh, all of these uh, events are part of a continuum and they really do have a pattern. Uh, this was uh, another uh, prearranged affair. Um, it took place on both sides of the Atlantic between the Wilson administration and uh, the British uh, with Winston Churchill who of course would be prime minister at the time of World War II, but in World War I, he was the head of the British Admiralty until he was relieved of that uh, position. And uh, uh, the Lusitania, um, the, the uh, Germans were uh, uh, at war, of course, with uh, with uh, with uh, the British at, at the time uh, that the Lusitania was sunk. We were still neutral. And Winston Churchill wanted very badly to bring America into the war on Britain's side. And so he started having uh, merchant ships um, equipped with cannons so that, uh, and, and they were ordered to ram any U-boats that might surface. So the Germans were forced to abandon what was called the cruiser rules, where they would allow a ship to disembark their crews and pa- or passengers in, in lifeboats before they sank them and torpedoed them. But Churchill made that impossible. He was hoping that the Germans would sink an American ship by, by mistake, which they didn't. They're very scrupulous about what they did. So uh, he went to a plan B, which is to have the uh, Germans sink a British ship with Americans on board. That was the Lusitania. The Germans did not want to involve America in the war, and they attempted to take out uh, ads in all the major newspapers warning uh, people not to board the Lusitania. The Lusitania had ferried munitions several times from America to Britain. And of course, Germany wanted those munitions not to reach Britain because it would be used against their soldiers in combat. And so naturally, they had to stop that. Uh, they, they wanted to cut off that supply. If you look at the Lusitania, it had 173, at that time it was sunk, it had 173 tons of rifle cartridges, it had uh, 50 tons of shrapnel shells, it had 46 tons of aluminum hydroxide, which was a explosive the British military used, it had unnumbered tons of gun cotton, another military explosive, and as well as uh, percussion fuses. I mean, that thing was a walking uh, death trap and uh, or floating death trap, I should say, and Americans were not, it was against our laws to put passengers on a boat with explosives or a train that had explosives on it, and we violated that uh, in full knowledge that w- of what she was carrying. Uh, the Lusitania was sent directly into the path of a, a U-boat. Um, this was known to Winston Churchill, uh, that this U-boat was off the coast of, the, of Ireland, the southern coast, and I think uh, uh, it's good to put a quote in here, so it's not just uh, me talking, but Patrick Beasley, who was uh, in British n- naval intelligence for many years, and he's uh, considered the greatest t- uh, authority in the history of British naval intelligence, said this, quote, nothing, absolutely nothing was done to ensure the liner's safe arrival. I am reluctantly driven to the conclusion that there was a conspiracy, his words, okay, deliberately to put the Lusitania at risk in the hopes that even an abortive attack would bring the United States into the war. Such a conspiracy could not have been to effect 
but put into effect without Winston Churchill's express permission and approval, end quote. There's so many parts of this story, the fact that no destroyers were sent to escort the Lusitania as was normally the case, even though destroyers were lying in port idle that could have been sent. Um, the fact that uh, people in Britain were predicting that the Lusitania would be sunk, included our ambassador to um, um, England, Walter Heinz uh, Page, in a letter he wrote to his son five days before the sinking. Uh, there's so many indications this was foreknown and deliberately uh, allowed to occur to bring Americans to the war, uh, right through the cover-up that took place in the hearings afterwards. A very, a very typical pattern of events that you see in these these false flags. Remember the 9/11 Commission? There was a commission after Pearl Harbor, and they always they always engaged in cover-ups. Are you familiar with Sir Edward Grey of Britain and mm. Colonel House in America actually talking? about uh, sinking the Lusitania before it happened as a means to bring the U.S. into war. This is in uh, published by Yale University, a book titled The Intimate Papers of Colonel House. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, it's, it's in my book and in uh, my online post. Uh, I'll quote from it. I have it right here. Um, House wrote in uh, his own correspondence, he met with Edward Gray the day that the morning the Lusitania was sunk of that same day, right? He said, uh, we spoke of the probability of an ocean liner being sunk, and I told him if this were done, a flame of indignation would sweep across America, would in itself probably carry us into the war. Now, later that day, the day the Lusitania was sunk, House and Gray went to Buckingham Palace and met with King Edward V, I'm sorry, King George V, and uh, House wrote this. He said, quote, we fell to talking strangely enough of the probability of Germany sinking a transatlantic liner he, meaning the king, said, suppose they should sink the Lusitania with American passengers on board. I mean, that is too prophetic to be said by chance. I mean, they were looking at the this as uh, something they were anticipating. And two things that uh, the great historian Ralph Rico, rest in peace, uh, makes sure to uh, remind us of is in both cases, both world wars, Britain declared war on Germany, first for invading Belgian neutrality even though Churchill had already planned on, uh, you know, having a blockade of Antwerp. And uh, they also declared war on Germany for invading Poland, even though the Soviets uh, had planned on uh, d doing the same thing. And Reiko says one of the biggest crimes in the First World War was Lord Admiralty Churchill's blockade of Germany, which uh, even pro-Churchill historians like Martin Gilbert say it was around 760,000 deaths as a causal result of this right. blockade. I mean, these are just such blatant atrocities that when you see something like, oh, I don't know, they wouldn't, you know, kill innocent people on the Lusitania. Look at what is done blatantly um, in uh, w without, uh, you know, any uh, cover-up. So that gives us, uh, that brings us into the Second World War. What is the truth about uh, the story of Pearl Harbor? Uh, there are uh, three major uh, aspects to this. Uh, uh, one is that the attack was provoked. And when I say provoked, uh, I mean that, um, interesting enough, this happened uh, right after the Soviet Union was invaded in Operation Barbarossa, not only by Germany, but by five other nations, Croatia, Finland, uh, Italy, Romania. Uh, and along with Belgian and large numbers of Belgian and, and uh, Spanish volunteers. Um, we uh, imposed an all-out trade embargo on Japan, which was strangling her. We were joined by the Dutch and the British in this. Japan was dependent on uh, imports for 88% of her oil, 75% of her foodstuffs, and many of the things. 
and um, we demanded um, that uh, she withdraw all troops from overseas uh, to lift the embargo. Now, they couldn't do that because this is something that this is where the double standard applies again. We condemn Germany for invading Poland in September 1939, but not the Russians for doing the same thing that very month. Uh, likewise, Stalin had invaded Asia. He absorbed uh, Upper Mongolia, Outer Mongolia, excuse me, in the Chinese province of Xinjiang. The Japanese saw that communism was going to engulf China, which did happen after the war. So they put their troops into China, not as a plan of world conquest, as we were told, but actually to provide a bastion against the invasion of communism. Um, they, they could not obey our demand to withdraw all troops. They actually said, we'll, we'll, we'll take all of our troops out of every uh, uh, foreign location except Manchuria. We need to have a bastion defense right across the, uh, the sea from us. And we refused that also. Uh, so uh, basically we're saying you have a choice. You're gonna, you can die by communism or die by starvation. And the Japanese said, if you give us a, a, a two-headed coin, either one that says death, we'll have to fight you. That's number one, the provocation. Number two, why was the fleet in Pearl Harbor? Um, it was not a naval recommendation. President Roosevelt made that decision in October of 1940 to indefinitely base the fleet in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii uh, rather than its normal berthing on the West Coast. And uh, on the West Coast, we couldn't have been a surprise attack. But in Hawaii, you're surrounded by uninhabited waters for 360 degrees. Our, uh, our uh, military in Hawaii was badly uh, undermanned in terms of uh, under-equipped, I should say, in terms of uh, patrol planes. They didn't have enough. And uh, also, uh, we had to resupply the fleet over, over 2,000 miles of the Pacific. Um, it was bad for morale, uh, separating 20,000 sailors from their families. Uh, Japan was 37% Japanese, so you were sub much more subject to the potential for espionage and sabotage there. Uh, you had inadequate fuel you know, fuel facilities and, and dry docks and tugboats and stuff that you needed to service the fleet. Uh, Admiral J.O. Richardson, who was the fleet commander at that time, flew to Washington in a rage when that order was given. And he told Roosevelt all the reasons you can't put the fleet there. Well, Roosevelt's response was to fire Richardson and without giving him an explanation. He refused to give him an explanation. We fired him. Um, but it was Roosevelt's decision to put the fleet in Pearl Harbor where so vulnerable to Japanese attack. And he was never held accountable by mainstream historians. The third thing to know is that we knew the attack was coming. We had cracked Japan's naval code. I'm um, sorry, their uh, diplomatic code called Purple, which was so complex it had to be enciphered and deciphered by machines. And the Japanese thought it couldn't be broken, but we had a, actually, we, after the Americans had a talented cryptanalyst who broke that code in 1940, we had our, devised our own machines. We were able to read the diplomatic messages often on a same day basis. And uh, certain elite people, uh, such as the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, along with the president, um, even Harry Hopkins, who was an unofficial advisor to the president and close associate of Bernard Baruch, was allowed to read them in his hotel room and probably passed on that message to, you know, the bankers. Uh, from that position. But our commanders in Hawaii, uh, Admiral Husband Kimmel and General Walter Short, um, were not privy to those messages. They were given no forewarning the attack was coming. The, the messages indicated uh, we already knew that um, the fleet was on its way, the Japanese aircraft, aircraft carrier fleet. Uh, we knew that Admiral Yamamoto had said that uh, to prepare for an invasion of Honolulu, uh, of Hawaii. 
Uh, we knew that the uh, Germans had told their, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Japanese had told their embassy in Berlin to warn the Germans that war was about to break out. We even translated the declaration of war that, on December the 6th of the day before they, they officially turned it into Washington. So there was no surprise in Washington, but this, uh, everything was done to delay any warning to Hawaii. So we actually set up, our, and this has happened so many times in America, we set up our own troops. 2,000 men died that day, uh, as well as 188 planes being um, destroyed on the ground and 18 warships uh, sunk or heavily damaged. Um, this was a sacrifice that the powers would be willing to make to get us into that war. So the war was, the attack on Pearl Harbor was provoked. It was uh, set up by putting the fleet in Pearl Harbor against all naval advice and the attack was foreknown, but that advance warning was not shared with our military in Hawaii. So that's kind of the summary. There's so much to it. I have so many books on my shelf. Uh, going back to uh, the book Pearl Harbor, published in uh, 1947, uh, you know, Admiral Kimmel, who was the fleet commander, wrote a book in 1955. Uh, I think the best book is uh, Infamy by John Toland, the, the Pulitzer Prize winner uh, in 1982 or 84, I forget which. Um, I think it's, it's the best one that's been written, but there are many books about this, but they just don't get mainstream media attention. You know, most of them never got reviewed on, on the, uh, by the New York Times or uh, on the book of the month, putting the book of, book of the month club, right? So um, the, the public just still doesn't know this. They still don't know that uh, that attack was uh, a prearranged uh, event. Uh, John Toland does an excellent job in quoting mm -hmm. Henry Stimson's own diaries mm -hmm. in November of uh, of 1941 that uh, the Secretary of War, Skull and Bones right. member, was right. very well aware that this was taking place. Um, please uh, feel free to comment on that. And uh, please also discuss the work uh, that didn't come out until 1999 with Robert Stinnett and the McCollum memo. Right. Um, yeah, okay. As far as Stimson uh, goes, uh, again, like you say, Skull and Bones, member of the Council on Foreign Relations, very heavy duty in that group. Uh, in his diary, as uh, you say that autumn, he said, quote, we face the delicate question of the diplomatic fencing to be done so as to be sure Japan is put into the wrong and makes the first bad move, overt move. The question was how we should maneuver them, meaning the Japanese, into the position of firing the first shot. And um, uh, yet, uh, Robert Stinnett came out with that book, uh, yeah, uh, about the time you said. Um, uh, I, I'm totally blanking on the name, Day of Deceit. Right, Day of Deceit. Uh, and uh, what he succeeded in doing through the Freedom Information Act, which nobody had done before, he succeeded in determining that we had not only cracked Japan's diplomatic code, but their naval codes as well. And that was another big step forward in understanding what happened um, and how much foreknowledge uh, Washington Pearl Harbor. The McCullough, McCullum um, memorandum was Lieutenant Commander Arthur McCullum of Naval Intelligence, which uh, recommended an eight step plan to provoke Japan to war. And um, uh, the uh, the last step was the trade embargo, which is what they uh, the most important one in which they did enact. And McCollum's uh, memorandum closed with these words, quote, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. In fact, I'm going to quote um, Russell Grunfeld, uh, he's the captain of the Royal Navy, a historian, and this is what he wrote in 1952. He said, quote, no reasonably informed person can now believe that Japan made a villainous, unexpected attack on the United States. An attack was not only fully expected, was actually desired. It is beyond doubt that President Roosevelt wanted to get his country into war, but for political reasons was most anxious to ensure that the first act of hostility came from the other side, for which reason he caused increasing pressure to be put on the Japanese to appoint 
that no self-respecting nation could endure without resort to arms. Japan was meant by the American president to attack the United States, end quote. So many quotes like that you can find in my book or the books that I, I referenced my end notes uh, of my uh, online article, uh, um, Pearl Harbor Roosevelt's 9-11, or in my, um, again in my book, um, uh, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, I have a full, the full chapter, which is basically the equivalent of the online post. And um, this was also a uh, plan that Roosevelt was very well aware of. So it's, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, some guy made a memo. So what? There's crazy people everywhere. Well, the Export Control Act of uh, 1940 actually ended up uh, being enacted. So they are looking at this sort of thing. Here is an article from January 2nd, 1972 by the New York Times broken clock, right? Uh, war entry plans laid to Roosevelt. And one of the quotes, it's only two pages, says, uh, is quoting Winston Churchill. It says, the president has taken this very well and has made it clear that we would look for an incident which would justify him in opening hostilities, Churchill told the war cabinet, according to the minutes of the meeting. Now, that is completely different than you know, government uh, was just uh, trying to keep the peace and they were very isolationist and didn't want to get in. But, you know, their arm was twisted and they just basically had to go in the war. That is come a totally different narrative than everything uh, we have been uh, been sold about that. Um, in your book, uh, you then go on to discuss NACPA Day and Harry Truman. What was NACPA Day? Uh, that's uh, the day that is commemorated by Palestinians when um – uh, going back to 1948, when they were driven from their homes, there were uh, towns after towns, uh, massacres by the Zionists. Uh, 750,000 Palestinians were forced to live in squalor in tents. Um, in that particular chapter, I talk about um, the $2 million bribe that was given to Truman to recognize um, Israel, which he did 11 minutes after the state was announced. It took only 11 minutes to kowtow before the state of Israel, something the American presidents have been doing ever since. Um, and uh, But what I also talk about in that, that particular chapter is uh, this strange Oscar that was awarded. Um, it, when I was in high school, my father and I uh, were told that uh, 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 the coming Friday, there was uh, this local station was going to show uh, Gentleman's Agreement, winner of the best picture of 1947. And we thought, wow, best picture, this means great entertainment like Lawrence of Arabia or something like that. Right? It's going to be a great movie. We watched the movie, so boring. Um, now, my father was Jewish. I'm half Jewish myself, but the movie is a long sermon on anti-Semitism. It's basically Gregory Peck pretends to be Jewish so he can experience what it's like to be a Jew. And he, his, he experiences anti-Semitism under every rock. His boss, well, not his boss, but his secretary, his girlfriend, his janitor, his doctor, everybody's an anti-Semite. And uh, about the, the biggest, baddest thing that happens to him is he has trouble getting a reservation at a first-class hotel because of the Jewish name, right? But this, it, it was given the Oscar, and I, we always wonder, why does such a boring movie get an Oscar? There was no, there was no humor in the movie. There was no action. It was all dialogue, dull dialogue. It just put you, you had to keep your eyes open to keep watching this thing. And there was a, romance thrown in just for having a romance but had no spark there was nothing to it and the girl played by dorothy mcguire at the end of the movie she can only win gregory peck by promising to join in the fight against american anti-semitism well how does not getting a reservation at a high-class hotel in america compared to the nakba where on 
countless Palestinians were murdered and all driven from their homes and made a homeless people. The real tragedy of 1948 was that, but the Oscar was awarded um, in March of uh, 1948, uh, two months before we were recognized Israel. Obviously, the Oscar was intended to um, dignify the movie and uh, to make sure that its message about anti-Semitism got, got across so that everyone would feel that if they opposed the recognition of Israel, they would be stigmatized as anti-Semites at all. At all. You know, Hollywood has done this so many times. Uh, there's, there are a number of examples I can, I can give. Um, uh, I mean, Gary Cooper winning the Oscar for Best Actor for Sergeant York, which was released is about a, a soldier who is reluctant to enlist in World War One, and he does it becomes a hero. It was really six weeks before Pearl Harbor. They, they always know how to set up the public mostly. And of course, the movie Pearl Harbor came out in 2001. In May of 2001, I reviewed it for The New American, not knowing that that September, the new Pearl Harbor 9-11 was going to occur. Hollywood always works in tandem with the uh, the political establishment. It just happens again and again. But yeah. Always trying to uh, cr create a, uh, a narrative. Now, uh, you after NACBA, you discuss the Korean War. The general history behind the Korean War is, mm, gosh, what who, what what is the grandfather's name? Kim Il Sung, led by Joseph Stalin and international communism, was in North Korea, attempted to take over the South. The U.S. stepped in and saved the South from becoming like the North, giving us a great victory in the long run. What's the truth behind the Korean War? Well, the Korean War, uh, first of all, Stalin had no business being in North Korea. Now, we had fought the Japanese. You know, when Stalin came into the war with the Soviet Union five days before uh, Japan surrendered, we'd already hit Japan with the atomic bomb. They were already suing for surrender. But Stalin comes in, and because he helped us for those last five days, we awarded him North Korea. He was a trustee of North Korea. You know, it was an international trusteeship. That was proposed, by the way, in the Journal of Foreign Affairs the Council on Foreign Relations in a 1944 article called Korea in the Post-War World, we should, that Russia should get their share of Korea. So when Stalin's troops evacuated North Korea, they left uh, behind uh, the, the North Koreans fully armed with tanks and MiGs, uh, heavy weapons. But when the United States left South Korea, they had didn't have one tank, they didn't have an anti-tank gun. So it was a setup for an invasion. And then Dean Acheson gave a, 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 our Secretary of State gave a, uh, a announcement to the American Press Club in which he stated that uh, South Korea was outside of our national defense perimeter, which is an open invitation to Kim Il-sung to invade. Uh, of course, we did come to South Korea's uh, defense, but uh, uh, Acheson had specified this could only be done under UN auspices. So Harry Truman sent troops to Korea to fight. We lost over 30,000 dead, about 100,000 wounded. But he said this wasn't a war. He said it's a police action. He did not get a congressional declaration of war uh, because he said it was uh, we were under the UN's mandate now. And so what Congress said, he didn't give a hooey. Uh, so the purpose of the Korean War were really twofold. Number one was to validate the UN. We're fighting on the UN flag. Um, uh, to validate the UN, which was a new organization just established in 1945. The globalists thought that they could expand the UN's power directly, eventually found this was resisted by nationalistic nations. So they had to kind of switch the plan and to go under uh, and, and, uh, uh, other methods of building up a globalist power. But that was the idea at the time was to uh, fortify the UN, build its image as a peacekeeper, but also to strip Congress of its ability to declare war. The declaration of war for World War II, the last declaration of war we've ever had. Korea, Vietnam, all the Middle East wars, we never got a declaration of war. Congress, it's not your business. It's uh, the president can do what he likes. And that's what happened in Korea. That was the first step in that direction.
What was the Gulf of Tonkin incident? Okay, well, I don't discuss this one in my book. This is, uh, Vietnam is a pretty complicated war um, because even the counterculture that was opposing the war was controlled by the CIA. Um, and uh, we even have Dr. Timothy Leary, the guru of LSD, confirming that uh, you can see it on YouTube. He confirms, he says that every major event in the counterculture in the 60s, the CIA was behind it. So it's not an... Uh, an easy one to establish. But as far as the, the uh, Gulf of Tonkin event, that was um, uh, a uh, non-existent attack on U.S. destroyers, which uh, was then uh, utilized by uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and the President Lyndon Baines Johnson to get us into a war that cost 58,000 GIs their lives, as well as countless uh, Vietnamese, a war that lasted uh, 11 years after the Tonkin Gulf incident. Uh, interestingly enough, when Israel attacked the USS Liberty uh, in 1967, which is a real attack, and killed 34 U.S. sailors and wounded over 170, Johnson did absolutely nothing. In fact, the year after that, we tripled our aid to Israel, our military aid. So uh, you can see there's a total double standard by Lyndon Baines Johnson, a real attack. He doesn't respond, but a non-existent attack. He starts a major war, uh, the, the war in Vietnam, which was a, a tragic war in so many ways. It, it, it uh, had a lot of purposes, one of which was to create the counterculture rebellion against it, uh, to get away from Christian values, to turn us from what I would call a leave it to beaver society, which we had before the war, to a Woodstock culture uh, by 1969. It was a pretty quick transition, uh, changing the morals and mores of, of, of the American people, um, even the type of music they listened to. Um, uh, but the, the, whole, the whole undercurrent going on in the 60s. Uh, but yeah, that war is stretched out and it was a war that was actually winnable, uh, but uh, Washington did everything it could to restrain the military from actually gaining, uh, achieving victory in that war. The book is titled 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw. What is the Jigsaw? Okay, well, uh, what I've found is that uh, it's very difficult, you know, in a water cooler conversation with somebody uh, in a couple of minutes to try to give them, red pill them, you know, you just can't do it. You kind of have to, you kind of have to give people the broad picture. And if you just talk about one thing like 9-11, um, it's not enough. You have to show them the pattern. And, you know, uh, it's interesting, pe people who are whistleblowers on Pearl Harbor face the same resistance that people uh, give us now about COVID and about 9-11. They'll say, our government would never do that to us. They would never set up our own fleet at Pearl Harbor. And these were people in our War and Navy Department who knew what was going on. Even our fleet commander, Admiral Kibble, and our Army commander, General Walters E. Short, said, yes, we were set up. But uh, uh, no one was believing this. Uh, and so you really have to get people the, if you put together a jigsaw puzzle, if you show people just one piece, it's nothing, it's just a piece of color. But if you show them the full puzzle, now that piece makes sense. And that's what I've tried to do in my books. You know, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw is actually a companion book to an earlier book, which came out six years earlier, 2013, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, which is a primer on the New World Order. You know, I go into false flags, the Fed, the Council on Foreign Relations, weather control.